namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Aparutade sangamatasa tawara ye sodawanta bamunjantu satang. So this is, um, I have a short time left here in New Hampshire. In a couple of weeks, I'll return to England. And I just want to express my appreciation for all the generosity interests that you've shown, both the Sangha and the lay communities. And the, I've given a lot of uh, reflections on the deathless because, and especially in a non-Buddhist country like this, uh, death is very much uh, our, our, our real world where we identify with things that cease. And... Uh, born and grow old, get sick and die. So this sequence of birth and death is important. Like in the monasteries in Thailand, the monks reflect on this every puja, on the beginning and ending of conditioned phenomena. So conditioned phenomena is the illusions that we hold uh, about ourselves and the world that we experience through the body, through the senses. And then we talk about the deathless, the Dhamma, ultimate reality. But when we call it ultimate reality, then it's, it's, it gives it a kind of superlative quality, which is not the, the re- accurate to describe the Dhamma. And in fact, you can't describe the Dhamma. It's apparent here and now and timeless. It's a deathless. It doesn't, it doesn't, wasn't born, doesn't die. So the whole point of the Buddhist teaching was to awaken to that, realize Dhamma is your reality rather than the illusions that you're conditioned to grasp and believe in and find uh, happiness and grief and fear and uh, aversion and greed and all the condition, all the qualities we imagine that we create in terms of conditioned phenomena. So conditioned phenomena is made very clear that it's uh, impermanent. It's uh, in, so in meditation, like in Vipassana, 
meditation insight practices, it's to verify this. And so the, you know, we start observing just how everything changes. Now, this is the autumn season, it's moving towards winter, coming over here this afternoon uh, in the EV, and I just noticed the barren trees where only a few weeks ago they were full of leaves and colorful leaves. When I first arrived here in August, they were all green. And now the sense of uh, the ending of something that began, that was born, when the leaves start producing, when the trees start producing leaves, and now those leaves are on the ground, they're dead. And so in terms of just uh, witnessing this, not just taking it for granted, that everything that has a beginning has an ending. And that includes every thought, every view, view, opinion, concept, belief system, uh, every emotion, whether it's pleasant or painful, has a beginning and an ending. And then this witnessing the birth and death of phenomena is a practice, is a path, what we call the path of non-suffering. So we, we take refuge in Buddha, which is the witnessing ability that, that human beings have to observe change as we experience it through the senses, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think, our emotional habits. And consulting, you know, we're trying to talk to people about uh, people who've experienced the death of a loved one, a grief, and of course, uh, you know, when a loved one dies and <clears throat> Grief seems to, they usually feel they're going to be depressed forever because they, they, they miss the person that died. And, and the attitude is, how do you get rid of grief? Rather than being the witness to grief. Because in everybody that's grieving knows it's, it, that, that what grief is. You know, it's an English word that we use for that kind of feeling of loss of loved one, separation from the love, is like this. So this year has been a, a, a kind of ongoing experience of loss for me personally. So my sister died, my a friend and supporter in England, George Sharp, died. And yesterday we received news of Arjan Gandaselo, an English bhikkhu who passed away in Thailand. And uh, an ongoing experience of my supporters in Bangkok that have been supporting the monasteries for years, passed away. Lumpo Cha died and on and on like that, so that, the, the, you know, there's always a sense of 
loss when uh, somebody dies. And it is impermanent, it's not a permanent state, but oftentimes we create problems around grief because we, uh, you know, we oftentimes feel guilty when somebody close to us dies, especially a mother or father, wife or husband or child. We, we can always look back to how we, you know, the mistakes we made or the problems we caused our parents and feel guilt about it, or we can just feel, well, somebody, you know, that we don't like dies, and that's good riddance. That's not grief. <laughs> so, but who's witnessing this? Whether it's good riddance or I'll, I'll be grieving forever, my loss, I can never, you know, that's going to be permanent state when it's not. And so, and it's not to just believe in, in, in the concept of impermanence, but to witness it. And this is the Puto, the Buddha position, taking a stand with witnessing the experiences that each one has whether they be pleasant, painful, success, failure, good, bad, right, and wrong. If we take the position of the Buddha, the Puto, then we can actually witness the experiences that we have to have in these human forms. So the deathless, when we talk about the deathless, a Mata Dhamma, Mata Dhamma, deathless reality, you know, is uh, is an absolute reality, ultimate reality, deathless. You can't imagine deathlessness. You know, you we when you try to describe deathlessness, uh, you try to do it. You know, see if you can find an English equivalent or meaningful descriptions of deathlessness. So death is an experience that we all have, you know, at the end of our lives when these bodies, uh, you know, when the occasion occurs, circumstances come together, then the weakness of the body fails and, and it passes away. So this is a witnessing position, which is the deathless reality that we take refuge in when we take refuge in Buddha. Utang Saranangachami. And that's part of any Theravada tradition, whether it's Thailand or Sri Lanka or Cambodia or Burma, you know, the, the Pali tradition, everybody takes refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So it becomes ceremonial, part of a, a religious ceremony, but it's much more profound than that. That's the surface, those are the words. And so by trusting in awareness, and then we begin to have insight insight practice. 
what we call jnana tasana, insight into the way into ultimate reality. We can't we can't describe it or find it, but we can realize it if we observe the changing conditions that we experience. So like your eyes are impermanent and the objects that you see are all impermanent and that goes through the ears and the smell, taste, touch, thoughts arise and cease. And by continuously contemplating this until you have the insight, Because you can believe in impermanence because it's in the scriptures, and but that that doesn't really resolve the problem because uh, you know when when life is disappointing, when there's failure or death or loss, then if it's just a belief, then it you know it becomes rather cynical. Everything is impermanent; doesn't matter. A kind of uh, passive. Uh, attitude, cynical attitude towards loss. Life is is all about, you know, everybody's gonna die and that just the way it is. And so it it can be kind of resignation to to the facts of that what is born dies, but not understanding, not having insight, having jnana dasana, these are the Pali words for insight, into the ultimate reality, which is possible through awareness. So there's so much emphasis now in the mass media on awareness or mindfulness, which didn't exist 30, 40 years ago. And now I see that as a good sign that with all the problems, personal problems, family problems, political problems, international problems that that are in the media that we pay attention to. You know, because we, we find it interesting or we feel strong emotions taking sides with one side against the other. We get caught in our prejudices, our biases uh, that we were conditioned with without witnessing it. Now witnessing is is not judgmental. It's not about right being better than left or good, you know, and, and, and everything should be good and there shouldn't be any bad. I've heard people lose their faith in Christianity because they feel God disappoints them when some loved one passes away and uh, they blame God for this natural reality that whatever is born can die. We all think, well, we, when we grow old, that's fair enough, you know, but sometimes infants die and children die and then in the news you hear the how many children were killed in a in a mass murder by somebody and you think it was children dying or our own children 
you know, it's not fair. And then we can, we can feel, uh, you know, a disillusionment with Christianity because of that, because God shouldn't have allowed that. We can carry on with, with our views and opinions about it. But that doesn't really awaken, wisdom doesn't awaken through just operating through the conditioning that we cling to and we identify with. So awakening is when we begin to trust in a witnessing position. And being the witness, and no, it's like this. It's not judgmental. When the Buddha taught about the way things are, you know, he, it's, it's not about how it should be where everything's fair and just and, and uh, benevolent and moral and kind and all problems can be solved with reasoning and, and discussions and, and uh, you know, we, we have ideals of using the superlative, positive superlatives to describe how life should be. But awakening to Dhamma is all conditions are impermanent. And that includes the good and the bad, the right and wrong, heaven and hell, angels and devils. You know, it's not about the deathless being just for the good people. Or if you're good enough, then you won't die. If you're virtuous and positive about everything, but how many of us can be totally good? You know, and uh, is that one's experience in terms of the past? Do we, from the day you're born, do you walk on seven lotus leaves and live a completely virtuous life? Or, you know, children learn through experience of, of uh, failing and starting again. You know, just watching a, a young child learning to walk. You know, the mother can say, you've got two legs, you can walk. Get up and walk. And it does have two legs. <laughs> but it first has to crawl and develop the strength through, through the limbs to be able to pull itself up on the furniture or something and take a step. So it's a, it's a growing experience of trial and error. So we learn from errors that we make, from things we say that we regret later or on and on like that. We learn from that. Hopefully, if we don't, then we, we, we go through life with being deluded and totally missing the opportunity as a human being to awaken to Dhamma. So when we talk about Dhamma being ultimate reality, translated into English, the Pali word Dhamma, or absolute reality, or reality, 
you know, that's, they're still using words, whether they're Pali, Sanskrit, English, Chinese, or whatever, they're still words, and words are impermanent. You know, so if you believe in Buddha, you can't believe in Buddha all the time. You know, you have to go to the monastery and ask a monk to give you the refuges and on and on like that. And then you assume you believe in Buddha, you know, 24-7 all the time, your whole life. So that is a kind of belief system or oftentimes called faith, blind faith, without inquiring into exactly what do you believe in. You know, is a belief something that you can trust and it is stable? Or beliefs are creations, they're artificial. They're not ultimate reality. The word Buddha is, a, is an artifice. It's a word. But what is the reality of Buddha? You know, when we use the word Buddha, is the witnessing position that we can, we begin to trust in and stabilize. We stabilize in this witnessing reality that is always available, whether you're healthy or sick, young or old, male or female. It has nothing to do with the conditions that one individuals are experiencing. Because it's whether you're a success or a failure, whether people love you or hate you, you know what you know. Everything is is witness to from the position of Bhutto or Buddha, knowing Dhamma that whatever it is is uh, you know is pleasant or painful, being successful or failing is like this, it, it, it arises and ceases. So does the witness arise and cease? Well, we don't take refuge in, in, in the belief that uh, I am the witness, that uh, Ajahn Zameto is, uh, is witnessing Dhamma every second of the, the day. You know, that's uh, an assumption. But it's, you know, when we talk about witnessing, it's just this, the simple reality of being conscious. So a conscious awareness is the most obvious thing that any of, it's a fact that we can trust in. We all know we're experiencing consciousness at this time. So consciousness isn't something personal. It's not like my consciousness and yours. That's a creation. When you create me as somebody separate from you, that's an artificial perception that is conventional, you know, but it's, it's not wisdom. It's just a conventional reality that we operate in in these conventional forms. But the aim is to not be just attached to conventions because they're all disappointing. You know, so 
you know, as long as our world is is a conventional world, you know, we're going to suffer from it because it it's going to be disappointing. Growing old isn't a, something that we want. You know, poor health, we want to be healthy and strong. We want to be approved of and alive. We want to be successful. You know, and these are all natural desires in the desire realm that we tend to take refuge in, in, in our desires. So the teaching of the Buddha was to understand the desire. Is, is consciousness a desire? You know, is it, is, you know, desire arises in consciousness. So we have desires that arise in consciousness, but consciousness itself is never, doesn't have desires. So we're getting to realize our nature isn't the things that arise or manifest in consciousness, but they're the changing conditions that we're experiencing. You can call it our karma or the way things are. And it's like this. So I remember with uh, Lung Po Cha in Thailand, he was, he was, uh, you know, emphasizing to me right from the beginning, before I could really understand what he was talking about, I did manage to, to, uh, through a translator, understand the way it is. And uh, this impressed me because it, it, you know, it was a confusing time for me to experience, uh, you know, learning another language and adapting to a completely different culture and way of life than what I'd been operating from before. But it's like this, so, you know, just determined to take this stand in this witnessing position. And, and then it's through trust in this. So when I chanted the, the gate to the deathless is open, after I said, I chanted Namo Tassa, and I said, de the gate to the deathless is open. So then uh, the rest of it is about trust in this. Release your faith, trust in, in this, the, the door is open. It's not, it's not just a, a belief, but what is it? It's to be investigated, to find out for yourself, the gate to the deathless. So this gate to the deathless is conscious awareness. It's simple, you know, that we all, it's not a, a mystery or something terribly refined that is beyond anybody. It's just not observed because of the cultural conditioning. So we're conditioned after we're born, we're conditioned by our parents, what they believe in, and we tend to adopt that because we don't know any better. We just 
absorb the delusions of the society and the worldly conditions that we get from our families, from our social status, from our religion. And then we operate in kind of grasping these conditions without reflection, uh, how they, they are impermanent. Like a belief is a very impermanent thing, it arises and ceases. But when we talk about taking a stand or being trusting in the awareness, that's not a personal position. It's not like I'm doing it, I'm just trusting it to be the witness of what I experience through this form, through this old body. It's like this. And, and without judging it. And that, you know, at first is hard to do because I was brought up in a very judgmental culture. And uh, so I'm culturally attuned to passing judgments of what's right and what's wrong and strong beliefs in, in uh, how things should be and, and uh, critical of when things aren't the way they should be. And, and that's and being educated too you you develop this you know so much information and the united states is a very idealistic country so it's you know it's a country where we are affected by the idealism of it and so at this time where there's so much conflict in politics it's because people are caught in their beliefs of right and wrong and who's, who, you know, the, the news is all about what somebody said about co condemnation or criticism, blame. And uh, this is a culture that we, we are born into if we're born in, in this country. Is it right or wrong? You know, then uh, then we take a stand. We can believe it. You know, if we're very patriotic, that we're always right. Or if we're critical and we see, you know, hear news about things that you know, Americans have done that were wrong, we can feel very upset, disillusioned with the with the country we're living in, and so we're caught in this whirlpool of right and wrong, good and bad, blaming the, you know, the American culture. It's about anybody can be president of the United States. Everybody's equal. And so even if you're from a very poor background, you can become president of the United States, which is, which is the ultimate the great success in American culture. So this is, and then if everybody's equal, then why is there so, everything so competitive and everybody wants to be a winner? Because if there's winners, there has to be losers and they're not equal, you know? So being a winner is, is, is uh, 
what you know what we're aiming to be successful in every in our relationships in our business in our life raising our families to be successful and uh, we we love competitive sports and the things that are people win or lose because this is and war itself is exciting you know when we talk about perfect harmonious peace that's not exciting so it's not sensational there's so much emphasis on sex and because sex is exciting you know it's interesting and exciting romance is exciting adventures having adventures is exciting but so much of life is not exciting or romantic, but boring and tedious. And so this is this you know we can you know we can, we have the technology now to always look at exciting films, blockbuster videos, and on and on like this that there was a lot of war, violence, and sex and adventure and. And it's entertaining. And nobody wants to look at a video of something that's boring. <laughs> so, because boring is what we don't want in our lives. And yet, so much of life is boring. How many exciting adventures can you have, or how much sex can you enjoy, or in good food, or win contests or whatever in in one's lifetime you know then we you know when we caught in that delusion of success and failure winners and losers then we, we're bound to suffer because that's very we're attached to to extremes of perception and so much of what we perceive through these forms isn't exciting, sexual, adventurous, romantic, interesting, but it is the way it is. And boredom is impermanent. So when we talk about peace, you know, being uh, when I was a student in Berkeley, uh, you know, I, I joined several peace movements. <laughs> and they were active in 1960 or so, and then. And uh, I wanted to fight for peace. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Berkeley's a heaven for protesting and ideal causes. So, you know, I went on marches carrying a peace sign and, and I joined the American Friends Service Committee, a Quaker organization, very peaceful, very idealistic. And, uh, you know, because I, I'm, you know, I wanted the best for the country. And the idea of peace was a problem because at that time there was a lot of conflicts as there is now. So we, uh, on one of these marches, you know, I 
and living in and experiencing these peace organizations that I was a member of, you realize that none of these peace activists were very peaceful. <laughs> and then I realized I wasn't peaceful. And I was very confused and uh, very, you know, caught up in, in judgmental opinions. And so, you know, this is when I, it was like an insight. Suddenly I, I witnessed how confused, the confusing experiences I was having while demanding peace from the American government. <laughs> And, and suddenly it seemed absurd, you know, what I was doing. Because, uh, you know, I couldn't, if I couldn't be peaceful, how could I expect the American government to make things peaceful for me? <laughs> so my interest in Buddhist meditation developed strongly from that kind of insight. And that insight was just witnessing confusion in myself disappointment in the peace movements that I was a member of, blaming them because they, they weren't, the people in them didn't seem very peaceful. And, uh, you know, criticizing that, that they should be peaceful themselves. And then, you know, then I, that always going out, looking at somebody else and, and, and conceiving how they should be, according to my opinion, and that's not peaceful. You know, it's a very confusing state to be in, to always be passing judgments on others, taking sides. So I, you know, it's a interesting time for me because, it, you know, it was a, an insight for taking the position of witnessing rather than just trying to make myself peaceful and, and some kind of deliberate effort to be the ideal peace marcher that I imagine. So what is peace, you know? Is, is uh, this monastery peaceful? <laughs> and... And do you come here to find peace in the monastery? And then when you go back to the city, are you, you know, peaceful? You know, is it the peace you experience here might be, you know, might be a peaceful place, but you, you don't witness it. You, you take it, you know, you cling to it. You won't expect to, when you expect to come to this monastery, you don't want to get caught up in conflicts. So, this witnessing position, taking a stand with Buddha, or taking refuge in Buddha, awareness, conscious awareness, doesn't demand that everybody be peaceful. In Wadmapo, I remember with Lumpur Cha, there are always conflicts in the Sangha. And... Uh, in lay communities, and and you know, with somebody so wise as Lung Po Cha, there 
everybody be peaceful, but he did have a good effect on the local villages and towns around. But to really take the stand, take refuge in Buddha, you know, not many were willing to do that and be the witness to the way things are. And what is the way things are is all conditions are impermanent. That's, a, that's just the way it is. And being impermanent doesn't mean, is not a judgment, is it? It's not like things should be, good should be permanent, bad should be impermanent. That's another artificial creation. And that's how it should be. But the way it is, this experience of birth that we we're all have had growing up, the age that we identify with, the age of the body is like this, and this witnessing of age isn't old. You know, so in terms of the body, this body sitting here talking is conventionally speaking 88 years old in three months. So I'm in my 89th year, the body is, and, and it's like this. So, uh, you know, like my vision, I have to go to the eye doctors and get injections, and I've lost the central vision in the right eye. So, you know, like, I can chop off your head just by shutting my eye. <laughs> and uh, the other eye, the left eye, is just being saved. I can still read and things, but I have to magnifying glasses or read from an iPad with big letters. And that. But it's, it's this suffering. I, if I take it personally, then it is. But I don't want this vision to be like this. You know, my personality, my ego wants to have perfect 2020 vision all the time. <laughs> So on a personal level, I don't want to have old eyes that are fading or ears that don't hear very well. And, and I can't walk very steadily. I have very numb feet. I have neuropathic problems in, in the lower extremities of my body. And I don't like it personally. And if there's a vaccination or a pill available that will fix it all, I'd be more than glad to try. <laughs> but so far, you know, I haven't found any, any miracle treatments. But also taking refuge in Buddha, you don't, I don't suffer. Because my refuge is in the deathless reality of conscious awareness, not in the fading out of a physical form. But it's good to know, like with awareness, we're aware of the ego. You're not the ego anymore. You're not limited by the conditioning identities you, you had about your appearance, your gender, your race, or cultural identities or that you're not those are limitations artificial artifices that we we grasp and when we don't grasp them 
then our real identity is awareness, conscious awareness. But we don't take that personally. Like the Dhamma is all conditions are impermanent, all Dhamma is non-self, non-personal. So, so consciousness is not personal, it's universal, it's unitive, it's what we all are. And then the forms that manifest in consciousness are not what we really are. They're impermanent conditions, empty phenomena, arising, ceasing, being born and dying. So this this kind of teaching is very profound, it's very wise. It's a simple Buddhist teaching. Sometimes Buddhism sounds very complicated, very complex. And uh, there's so many scriptures and commentaries and different kinds of Buddhist traditions and and it's a very old uh, ancient religion. So, you know, in terms of the external forms of Buddhism, it can be very complicated, but its very essential nature is very simple. It's the waking up to Dhamma. All conditions are impermanent. You know, if you, if you really, and that's not a belief anymore. It's it's to through witnessing the changing conditions that I experience in this form, this human body. And there's nothing I've found that is permanent. And the ego that wants, doesn't want to have poor vision or deaf ears is impermanent. It's not my, what I hold to or believe in. But I know it as, as, as a condition. Not judging it, it's, it arises and ceases like any other condition. But knowing the ego, you're not that limited ego that you tend to believe that you are. You're not bound to these limitations, to these artificial conditions. When the, when the opportunity to wake up and realize Dhamma, absolute, ultimate reality of what is, it's not, you know, absolute and ultimate, as I said before, are rather are superlative in the English language. It's not superlative, it's here and now. It's not high and refined and, and, uh, and only a few spirit, highly spiritually developed people can realize it. We might believe that. How many of you believe that you're not very spiritually evolved or that you're, you're not good enough to realize Dhamma? Or, you know, we, we do see ourselves oftentimes with feelings of, you know, the monks are something special, but we're, we're not. I, I still have so many kind of worldly desires and, and that's all conditions opinions and views that we cling to. When we believe that, then we become that way. We limit ourselves to what we think and believe we are, 
you know that uh, that is always uh, the result is suffering. The first noble truth, and so the first noble truth is a statement, not a belief. There is suffering. And so when we don't want to suffer, nobody wants, my ego doesn't want to suffer. You know, in the body, you know, when you're, it still suffers even when, you know, you get childhood diseases and, you know, in the Sangha in Thailand, I had malaria several times. And that's very unpleasant disease. <laughs> and I used to have, uh, my right foot was damaged when I was in the Peace Corps, and um, and so the lymphatic system in the right leg it was it's never operated very well, so it swells up and you get cellulitis if you get a cut in your foot, and it gets infected, then the whole leg swells up, and uh, you have to go to a hospital. <laughs> so, and you know, I don't like that. I don't like cellulitis. <laughs> and then I ordained in Thailand after the Peace Corps, where you go barefoot. <laughs> so, as a layman, I could wear nice shoes and protect the feet. But, and uh, as a Buddhist monk in Northeast Thailand, you go barefoot. Or, in Bangkok, you go in Bangkok, you go barefoot. And so then I had to be very careful. Because if I stub my toes or cut my feet, then it easily get infected. Cellulitis can be very dangerous. You get very high fevers. And so, you know, this is, nobody wants this, the body, you know, you want your body to be healthy. You want to. You don't want to be subject to malaria or or COVID nineteen or anything else. You know, you want good health and strength. So that's the ego wants that. That's desirable, and it is desirable. But desirable means is a judgment. You know, it's what we want. But the way it is, is like this. Like neuro, neuropathic, neuropathic problems with the, with the feet are like this. Makes it difficult to walk. And then um, seeing poor vision is like this, hearing is like this. And there's no suffering. It's just the way things are when you detach, when you take your stand with Bhutto, with witnessing, rather than with the, the desire to, you know, or the resentment of getting old, or the limitations you find yourself in, or the embarrassing, humiliating experiences of old age, <laughs> and, and on and on like that, you know, you, you, nobody wants that. You know, so as, as an ego, I don't want it. But I know that that's the ego. What is it that knows that is a condition that arises and ceases is awareness, conscious awareness. 
So is it wrong or right? You know, should I not care about what happens to the body? You know, that's another position. I should be content is a very ideal for a monastic life. You should be content with the four requisites. And so you have, when you were ordained, you know, you, you're celibate, you give up sex, you, you uh, have robes and shelter for the night, whatever that might be. So the, the standard is, is bangsa kula cloth or rag robes. And the Buddha established the robe standard on just the lowest possible cloth standard you can think of. You know, so rags that the lay community has thrown away or, uh, you know, and they, in India they wrap the corpses in cloth. <laughs> and, and we're allowed to take that cloth <laughs> and make, make rag, make robes to cover the body. Shelter for the night is the root of the tree. And, you know, you think of living, at, uh, you know, as it's getting cold here, the, Winter's coming, living at, at the root of a tree in New Hampshire. <laughs> so we are very grateful for the cooties and the shelters that, that are made available to us. And food, alms food that people give. And so we oftentimes criticize for, for uh, eating meat. Because there's so many, uh, being vegetarian or vegan is, is uh, you know, so nonviolent and peaceful. But then the Buddha and the Vinaya didn't want us to become vegetarians, but available to whatever food was available, whether you go to an untouchable hut and they eat meat or a Brahmin, Vegetarian, you know, you receive what's offered is the is the is the general ideal for it. Food offering, what's dropped into the alms bowl. So, and medicine for illness is a is fermented cow's urine. So, for all these illnesses that I have, I've never had to take fermented cow's urine, <laughs> and so. You know, I have very good doctors, and I, I'm a veteran, so I get care from the Veterans Association, VA, and in England they have health care freely available. And so, you know, the medicine, for, I always had the best medicine, the best food. Very, very, most of my life I've had good shelters, and nice robes. So this was this this kind of reflection is is a way to to be grateful, develop gratitude as an alms mendicant. Because your people always offer. I've lived in very poor villages in Thailand, and uh, these poor people will give the very best food they can possibly find to give to monks. So you're not just eating waste food or having to strip corpses of cloth to make a robe, but you know when you reflect on this, these very low standards allowed by the Buddha, 
Then that, and then they were allowed to receive uh, cloth for uh, good material to make robes if somebody offers, or a kuti, you know, a, a shelter for the night, and uh, and on and on like that. It's not a breaking rules, but it means that that we develop a sense of gratitude, what they call katanyu gatawaiti, because our life is dependent for the, the basic necessities for survival on others. And then to be content with that. So as an ideal, you know, I would think I'm content. But witnessing, witnessing, I could witness discontent. Like uh, the food, I didn't like the food. <laughs> I could witness that. Then the idea as a person, you know, the ideal of I should be content and grateful for what's offered is still part of the thinking artificial process. But the important thing is to recognize discontentment, not try to make yourself into an ideal, but to learn about discontentment is impermanent and not self. And when you let go of discontentment, when you recognize it, then you experience contentment and peace. Because conscious awareness is peaceful. It's not interesting. <laughs> but it's peaceful. And in old age, it's very wonderful to have peaceful minds. You know, so that, you know, you rather than a discontented one that that uh, has full of regrets or disappointments or feelings of loss or betrayal by friends or resentments of the past you know like uh, when even you meet old people they oftentimes have so much bitterness about disappointments in relationships or they feel like they're failures, they're not successful like they should be or wanted to be. And so, you know, in old age can be an experience of great suffering. Or through taking the stand in awareness, Bhutto or the Buddha, taking refuge in the Buddha, then we are this awareness itself, which doesn't, isn't disappointed where disappointment might arise, but your identity is no longer with the manifest conditions that you experience. So you don't attach to them. You let go if you are attached. And if you aren't attached, then the memories of the past, unpleasant memories of the past can still arise, but you're, you're, there's no attach, attachment to them or resistance to them. They arise and they cease, they end. And so the ending of conditioned phenomena, to be the witness to just internally, you know, how thoughts arise and cease. Be aware of 
boredom as a, as opportunity rather than as trying to distract yourself from it. Witness that boredom is like this, or discontentment, dissatisfaction is like this. And just by this way of simple way of reflecting, you, you see the ending, things, what arises inevitably ceases, and that's the way it's supposed to be. All conditions are impermanent. They're empty and impermanent, and what is ultimately real is Dhamma here and now, apparent here and now, and timeless. So I offer this as reflection for this afternoon. <laughs>